This is a continuation of Rabbi Silber's um, Sunday class on Bereshit. Again, if you are here for Jacob and his children, then congratulations. You are in the correct Zoom room. It's good to have you. If you, if there will not be a source sheet for today's class, please keep a your preferred Tanakh um, open at uh, Bereshit 38 to start. 39. 39. And links to online um, Tanakhs will be shared later in chat in Safaria as well as on screen. And that, Rabbi Silber. Okay, thank you. All right, let's continue with chapter 39. Joseph is now in Egypt. That's how the chapter begins. Joseph was brought down to Egypt. In verse number one, the Ishmaelites brought him down. And we discussed that exactly how Joseph got down there, but in any event, chapter 39, verse number one, the Ishmaelites brought Joseph to Egypt, and we have already commented in the past on some of the parallels between the story of Ishmael, his banishment, his expulsion from the house, and the story of Joseph. Uh, those two stories are similar in certain ways, and we will uh, get back to that later on as we proceed through the rest of the book of Breshit. Uh, Joseph comes to Egypt, and as we saw last week, first few verses of chapter 39, he starts as a slave in the land, a foreigner slave in the land of Egypt. You can't start any lower than that. Um, but he, um, he very quickly uh, is moving uh, up in the world. And that is uh, detailed in chapter 39 in the following way. First of all, in, this, in the second verse, it simply says that God is with Joseph. And God is, uh, Joseph is a uh, successful matzliach. The Chumash doesn't tell us in what sense of what he actually is doing, but he's successful. God is with him. In the house of the, his master, the Egyptian. We commented last week just to review that there's a focus on the idea that Potiphar is an Egyptian in the very first verse, each Mitzri. Uh, so we'll keep that in mind. But then we're told since uh, Joseph is very successful. And in verse number three, and, and it's it's clear to his master, Potiphar is called his master, Adonav, is Adon, we'll get to that later. His master sees that God is with him, incredibly. And it's interesting that the name of God that's used over here is yud the very personal name of God for Israel, striking. Potiphar understands that there's something special about this fellow that God is with him, and by Yesharet Oto, that's a step up in the world. He becomes his, what was his, his valet, his personal servant. He's not just one of the slaves. Potiphar, I presume, has many slaves. The man has a jail in his, in his, in his, in his basement. But he has, but Joseph is special. Joseph is his Misharet. And um, the Chumash continues in the next three words, by Yafkidel al he appoints him over his house. That's a really a big job, not just a personal valet, but he appoints him to be in charge of the house, some kind of administrative position. And then the continuation is, and all that he had, everything that he had, he placed in his hands. So this is an enormous responsibility. He's over the house, and by it can mean the physical house, by it can mean the people in the house. Maybe he has 100 servants. And Joseph's in charge of that. And not only that, everything that he has, he places in his hands. And now the Chumash continues in the fifth pasuk. 
that from the time this happens, and from that time on, so God, Hashem, blesses the house of the Egyptian on account of Joseph. And the Chumash adds that the blessing extends not just to all that he possesses, but all that he possesses in the house, and then the Chumash adds in the field, in the Sadeh. So Joseph is in charge, not just of the house, not just the administration of the house and his possessions, but specifically the house and the field. So Potiphar has fields as well as a house. He also will see what has a jail. And now the next verse is very striking. Verse number six, Vayazov Yosef. That's the next verse. Vayazov Yosef. And that's a very interesting uh, word. Vayazov. Vayazov is to leave behind or to leave or to forsake. So the construction of this verse is very strange. Vayazov, he forsook all that he had into Joseph's hand. Here they translate, he left. But Vayazov was stronger than left. It's left, but it's Vayazov is to depart from something. I will not leave you. God said to Jacob. And he doesn't know, he doesn't pay no attention to what he does. He completely hands it over to Joseph. Joseph's in control of everything. Vayazov, in a sense that Potiphar is simply absent. He absents himself. He knows nothing that he does. He concerns himself with nothing that Joseph does, except very strange uh, phrase, except save, except for the food that he ate. So that's Joseph now is, has, one might say, in, in effect, Joseph replaced Potiphar. In terms of administration, Joseph is doing, and Potiphar doesn't know even what he's doing. So there's an element here of trust because everything, every time Joseph does something, there's blessing. He brings blessing to everything he touches. So now he's giving Joseph everything, the house, the field, and he doesn't know what he does. He doesn't check up on him. He simply trusts him, except when it comes to the lechem. We'll get back to that. And now we have the strange last few words of verse number six. By he Yosef, Now Joseph, here they translate well built and handsome. That's the English Safari translation. I don't know. I think it's, J, it's a JPS translation. Well built and handsome. Uh, I wouldn't uh, have used those words because you, you, well built and handsome sounds, sounds like, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like that. He's like, you know, Charles Atlas. But that's not your fate toa or your fate toa or your is a uh, expression that the Chumash uses earlier for, uh, for example, uh, Rachel, his mother. It's an expression, your fate toa or that typically we find so in the Torah and probably in the Tanakh in general, uh, as a description of, of, of beautiful women. We don't find um, we don't find that description for men. The closest we come to it elsewhere is, is the description of, 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 uh, of, uh, of David in the book of Shmuel. the Tovroi, similar, but maybe comment on that later. But what is that expression doing here? 
For if the Chumash was simply interested in telling us that Joseph was good looking, why does it say it only after this, for the Torah, long description of Joseph's ascent within the house of Potiphar? And what I would suggest over here, as we begin our study this morning, is that you know, there are servants in homes, slaves or servants in homes. What's the name of Ellison's book, uh, Invisible Man? And these people are invisible. Uh, not really people. They're people, of course, but they're people that the master uses for the master's own purposes. They're not really taken seriously as people. And then when Joseph came down to Egypt, the Chumash suggests to us, is he really a person? He's a Hebrew slave. He's one of the help, probably on the lowest uh, rung of the ladder. But gradually he was moving up in the world. So he's first the house and then the field and then everything. And then the Potiphar pays no attention to him. He's totally in control. And suddenly, suddenly he's a person and, and suddenly he's a, he's a beautiful person having, having uh, moved up the ladder in a place of real power, then suddenly the text and Mrs. Potiphar will take notice of him. Suddenly he's beautiful, suddenly he's attractive. And that's the next verse. And that's our introduction to what happens next with Mrs. Potiphar. But before we get to Mrs. Potiphar, which is the crux, uh, the main story in chapter 39, I wanted to make another comment about verse number five. That strange verse, Vayazov that strange construction, Vayazov, to leave, to abandon, to forsake. And I think here, what's interesting to note is that what the Chumash has done is to set up for us another story. There's another story that, and it's hard to know, you know, when you're reading this, it's hard to know whether this is the primary story and the other story later on plays off it, or whether already over here, <coughs> the Chumash is anticipating, the Chumash uses the language here for it anticipates a later story. And the later story I'm referring to, of course, which plays off the phrase, Vayazov ko'ashero biyad yosef, and this actually is a very important point. There's a story later which exactly plays off these, these words. And the story, of course, is the story of Moshe. And Moshe, when Moshe, has to, when Moshe leaves, one might say, uh, runs away from the land of Egypt because Pharaoh wants to kill him because Moshe has killed an Egyptian taskmaster. And Moshe runs off and leaves from the Egypt and he ends up in the land of Midian. And when he comes to the land of Midian, first thing he encounters is he comes to a well and there are uh, women who happen to be the daughters of the priest of Reuel who were waiting to get water from the well. And it's their turn to get water from the well, but the other shepherds, but the men presumably, chase them away. They, they, they don't let them take their water. And when Moshe sees this, he intervenes on their behalf. By Yaakov Moshe Vayoshiyon, the end of the second chapter of the book of Shemot, by Yashget Sonam. So he, he helps them, he protects them. Chumash uses the word, he, he delivers them. By Yoshiyon, he's a Moshiach, he saves them. And they go home. He doesn't speak to them, and they don't speak to him, they don't thank him. They go their way, he goes his way. And they come home to Yitro. 
And Yidro says to them at the end of the second chapter of Shemot, this is chapter two, verse number, let's find that very quickly for you. Chapter two, verse number, here it is. Verse number 16. After he, Moshe has helped them at the well, they went back to their father, Ruel. Chapter two, verse, uh, verse number 18 it is. Chapter two, verse 18. And he says to the daughters, how come you're home so soon? See that last right there. Why did you come home so hey? Because apparently this happened all the time. They would go to get water and they, the other shepherds would push them away. And, uh, you know, the weaker of women, whatever it is, and they would be the last on the line. So this, today they come home four hours earlier. What, what happened? Vatomarna, some Egyptian man saved us, saved us, powerful word, from the shepherds. Not only that, so now he saved us and he also watered the flock for us. That's what they say to the father, Ruel. So Ruel says, and Ruel said to his daughters, really? So where, where is he? Why did you abandon the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Now, of course, the second you read this, obviously, you connect it to the Pasuk of Yosef. Obviously, the two verses speak to one another. And now the question is, that's obvious. Now the question is, what do we make of this? And I'll say one thing we make of it, and there's a lot more. Uh, first of all, the difference between Ruel, who is also called Yitro in the next chapter, and, 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 and Potiphar. The difference is that Potiphar is very appreciative of what Joseph does, and he seems to constantly give him more and more control over the house, more power. But, except for the Lechem. And except for the Lechem means that there's something, he, he can go this far, but he can't go farther. Now we have to remember something about the Lechem, which the Chumash, as the Torah does, is setting something up for us. You say, he has everything except the Lechem. And that could mean, well, he basically has everything. There's one detail he doesn't have. Or it could mean something else. He has everything but the Lechem, but the Lechem is all important. And in point of fact, when you read the Joseph story, that is from here to the end of the book, what is very clear is that, is that Lechem is not a small detail in the Joseph narrative. In fact, it's the central detail. There's Lechem, which the Torah use other words for as well, such as Shever. But fundamentally, the Lechem is absolutely essential to the Joseph story and later, we're told when the brothers come down and eat with Joseph, they set three separate tables for Joseph, for the Egyptians, and for the brothers. Because the Egyptians cannot eat lechem together with Joseph, who is their viceroy, who's the second in command in the land of Egypt. But he's still not an Egyptian, and they can't eat lechem. So what we have in the case of Yitro is the acceptance. The acceptance of Moshe by, by Yitro is accentuated when you see the parallel story of Joseph, and that is 
the inability of the Egyptians to fully accept. I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent, but Joseph is not fully accepted. And that's the idea of the Lechem. And of course, what is striking is that Yitro or Uel is the priest of Midian. The Midianites are the ones who bring Joseph down to Egypt. The Ishmaelites bring him there, but the Midianites took him out of the pit and sold him. So the Midianites, as chapter 37 ended, the Midianites are the ones responsible for having Joseph removed from Egypt. But the priest of Midian, Yitro, is the one who is helpful to Moshe, who helps Moshe, who gives Moshe refuge, and gives him his daughter, and later will give advice about how to run the country, about the system of justice. So that Midianite is the one who helps, one might say, helps Israel return to the land. First set of Midianites, they're, 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 they're middlemen in each case. But here we have a, a very nice example where the Torah says a verse, and the verse strikes us as strange. So we think about that. And then we, later on, we come to Yitro, we say, all right, now I understand. That's the point I think that's fairly obvious. Now let me make another point about the um, connection between the two stories. And that is that what it suggests to us, without going into it now, the connection between Yosef and Moshe, it suggests to us that maybe there are other links between Yosef and Moshe. And in point of fact, as we proceed through this, if we get to Shemot together, there are many, many links between Yosef and Moshe, which have to be explored very, explored very deeply. One might say that Moshe picks up where Yosef leaves off. Moshe is a continuation of, of, of what Joseph begins in terms of Joseph's last uh, statement about God will redeem you and bring you back to the land. And then Joseph dies at age 110, which means he, it's not 120. It means it's premature in a sense. What might Joseph have done had Joseph lived? It's a very good question. And we'll get to that. But Moshe picks up where Joseph leaves off. So I give one example, one obvious example where the two stories, where the language of the two stories relate to each other. And then, of course, when you see one, we always think maybe there are many, many, many more, which in fact there will be. Okay, so this is the, now we get to the story of Mrs. Potiphar. Let me stop here for a moment to take comments or questions, and then we will continue with Mrs. Potiphar. If anybody has a comment or a question at this point. And if you're an attendee, feel free to request to speak and I'll unmute you. Um, can we make something of the fact that the on Pesach, we make such a point of matzah as opposed to lechem to pick up on what you said with lechem and with, you know, that whole thing. Well, I would say, I would say apart, right. I mean, matzah is also called lechem, you know, uh, it's called lechem only. So matzah is right. lechem, but it's called lechem, which is, which is, which is not fully baked, which is not fully out. So, I mean, there is a lot to be said about matzah as opposed to lechem, that's for sure. Uh, what I've said in the past, among other things, is that the Chumash will present the exodus from Egypt not as uh, a story in which the bond between God and Israel is, 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 is full, because it's a, uh, Lechem in the Chumash represents uh, covenant, represents uh, affiliation. If you eat bread with someone, they eat Lechem together, right? 
uh, whether it's the human being bringing the sacrifice or whether two, two, two humans. Uh, later. Chapter 18, he comes to, he, he, he breaks bread with Moshe. Arsini, right. Right, in Arsini, chapter 18, uh, just before the, uh, before the Ten Commandments. And um, so if Lechem is a, is a covenant, then I would say Matzah is a, a covenant being a full relationship. I would say Israel, upon leaving Egypt, has a half-baked relationship with God. As we see, it's not complete yet. And that's the significant, one of the significances of, of Matzah is that a half-baked relationship. As we know, they're going to complain constantly. And the Chumash uh, is suggesting to us that the goal is to move from the half-baked relationship to a full relationship as we move through the stories of the Chumash, the story of, of Shemot, etc. So I would say that's true. But the Matzah is also called Lechem in the Chumash. It's not, you also have, a, we had it earlier in, in the book of Breshit. When the, when the angels come to Lot's house, he gives them Matzah. When they come to Avram's house, he gives them Lechem. Sadulib, right? Gives him a suda lechem, right? Um, so that's also important. It, it suggests the relationship, matzah versus the lechem, lot versus abra. Okay, anybody else for a comment or question? Okay, if, if not, I'll just move forward. Is there any, anybody in the chat? No. Okay, so let's, let's continue then. So we're starting now with chapter 39 in the seventh apostle. So after these things, after these things meaning after Joseph has uh, assumed the position of great authority in the house, and I, you could even suggest he's somehow, from her perspective, replaced, uh, replaced uh, her own husband. Because he sort of checked out, Potiphar sort of checked out. Joseph has replaced the husband, Joseph, has the power. And when he has the power, suddenly he's a beautiful person. And she propositions him, Sheikh Ba'imli. Now, before we get to Joseph's response, which we'll spend some time on, I want to make the point that, come back to a point that we made earlier in the very first verse. Joseph was brought down to Egypt, Hurad Mitzrayimah, the Ishmaelites brought him down there, to the house of Potiphar, Ish Mitzri. So the Ish Mitzri is superfluous. Of course, we know he's a Mitzri. He's in Mitzrayim. And second of all, in chapter 37, it, it mentions the same, has exactly the same pasuk, minus the words Ish Mitzri. And the point here is that Ish Mitzri is not an informational point about Potiphar, but rather it's saying something else. The story we're about to read is about the Mitzri. And the Mitzri, as the Mitzri appears in the book of Reishi. And the first time we have the Mitzri as a narrative about the Egyptian in the book of Breshit, that's the story of Avram going down to, to Mitzrayim. There's a famine, just as uh, there's a famine. And Avram says to Sarah, his wife, let's go to Mitzrayim. I know it's a dangerous place. You're very beautiful. They're going to see you. They're going to want to take you because you're beautiful. Exactly the description we have of Joseph in verse number six. And if they think that I'm your husband, they'll kill me and they'll take you. So therefore say you're my sister. That's what we know about Mitzrayim. And in point of fact, um, it doesn't work out well because the one who Avram presumably thought he would say the brother, maybe he would negotiate for her, maybe he would stall them and they'd be able to leave, to leave Egypt together. That's how the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim understood it. That's a, 
I think a good interpretation, but he didn't take into account you can you can negotiate, you can stall when you deal with the normal Egyptian, but you can't negotiate when it comes to Paro. There's no negotiation with Paro, and Paro is told by the officers of his his officers, he's a beautiful woman, and he grabs Sarah. So it's a place where people take what they see, regardless of any moral uh, calculations. There's no moral calculation. You like it, you see it, you take it. Seeing and taking, which is the primal sin of the book of Breshit, which appeared earlier in chapter six, the Bnei Elohim see and take, the daughters of the human, and now in this story over here, we have a variation on that theme, except that in this case, it's striking that the one who's doing this seeing and the taking is not the man taking the woman, but in this particular case, it's the woman who wants to take the man who is described, however, in, in feminine terms, in terms that the Chumash described both Sarah on one hand, and in terms that the Chumash describes Rachel, Joseph's mother. That's gonna be the story. And the question will be about our hero, Joseph, who is this guy? Is he still Jewish? I mean, he was kicked out of the family. His own brother's trying to try to murder him. And now the question will be, of course, how the Chumash presents Joseph, how Joseph presents himself within the biblical text. Is he the Egyptian? Is he the Jew? He's moved up to a position of real power in the house of Potiphar. He's in charge of this apparently massive estate, a house, fields, and as we'll see, there's also a jail inside the house. So this is not any normal person. He's a, he's a Tsar. He's an officer, and he's a Tsar Tabachim. He's the chief butcher of Egypt. Again, what he butchers, humans or animals or both, we don't know. But you're talking about a person who has immense power. And now the question is, what about Joseph? And now we have verse number, verse number eight. He refused. Lumayin is to refuse. Joseph said no. He refuses to get involved with Mrs. Potiphar. And now, that's what the Chumash tells us. And now the Chumash reports what Joseph says. So let's read, let's read what he says, then we'll comment on this uh, on these psukim. He said to the wife of his master, so he, he repeats to the master what the Chumash has already told us, which is accurate. He says, look, he says, look here, my master, he refers to Potiphar as his Adoni, his master. My master doesn't know what happens in this house. As the Chumash said earlier, he, he knows nothing of what he does. Says Joseph, the ma my master, Potiphar, your, your husband, my master doesn't know what goes on in the house. And not only that, everything he has, he put into my hand. All that he owns, he's placed in my hands. Let's just read first the speech, one more verse. There's no one who wields more authority, literally greater than me. There's no one greater than me in the house. He has withheld from me nothing. Except for you. Because you're his wife. How then could I do this wicked, this great wicked thing? That I would sin against God. 
That's Joseph's response to Mrs. Potiphar. It's one of the highlights of Joseph's career, no question. And so he refuses, but he doesn't simply say no. He actually explains. And he gives an explanation why he cannot get involved with Mrs. Potiphar. And what is the explanation? So let's say what, what I think he's saying. Then the question is how she hears it. Well, she may hear it differently. It strikes me he's saying certainly two things, and I believe he's saying three things. Let's start with the two obvious things that Joseph says. The first thing he says is, the reason I can't get involved with you is because my master trusts me. It's a matter of trust. He trusts me to do the right thing. He doesn't check up on me. He doesn't even pay attention to what I do. He has implicit and explicit trust in me fully. Will you die to me And he plays to give everything in my hands. So this, the first point is the trust. And the second point, which is clear in verse number, uh, verse number nine, is a second point over here, which is, which is that not only does he trust me, so that's one reason I cannot get involved with you because I can't break a trust and implicitly suggesting you shouldn't break the trust either, I would say, but he talks about himself. But there's something else, which is everything that I have, I owe to that person. That person has done so much for me. How could I then, behind his back, do something hurtful to him? It's not right. It's a someone, someone helps you. You have to recognize that someone helped you and you shouldn't, do, shouldn't try to harm them in any way. So for those two reasons, he says, I have to say no. I have to refuse. That's, number, that, that's reason one and reason two. And then he adds to this, if I would do this wicked thing, it would be a sin against God. So he says, that's not just a kind of between me and, and my master Potiphar, but it will be a wicked thing if I break a trust and demonstrate complete lack of any kind of appreciation for what someone did for me, that would be sinful before God. So one can read that as simply the two main reasons the breaking of the trust and the, uh, the you know, not paying attention to or not recognizing that someone has helped me and done so much for me. And it frames it though in a kind of religious terms, this would, be a, this would be the wrong thing to do. This would be a sin before God. There could be another, there's another way to read this as well, which is that he's saying two things and a third thing. And the third thing is the following which is the following. He's given me everything except for you. You're the only thing I don't have, he says. How then could I do this wicked thing and sin before God means something different, which is the human being can't have everything. That's the first story of the Chumash, basically. The story of the Garden of Eden. You can eat the fruit of all the trees you can eat, but there's one tree you can't have. One tree, one fruit you can't have. It fruit of the tree of good and knowledge of good and evil that you can't have. Because if you would have that also, if you would have everything, then you might be God, or you might think you're God, which is actually the reason, if you think about it, why we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden in the first place. Because God says, at the end of chapter three of Rejit, look, 
God said to God's Uncle Raj, the humans become like us to know good and evil. And now the human may stretch out his hand and partake of the tree of life and live forever. So the human will be uh, omniscient, all-knowing, and also immortal. That would make the human God. And God says, I don't want the human to be God. Human is a human being and not God. Human is limited. God is not limited. So, but Joseph, can, we can read this, this verse additionally to what he clearly says about trust and about appreciation. And that's a religious, that's a, that, that's, that, that's a, those are religious values. It'll be a sin, be saying something more. It says the human being can't have everything, which is actually a very important point. And I think specifically someone who, who actually has the ambition to rule, someone who craves power, such as Joseph. It was somebody who has dreamed when he's 17 years old that the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down and that the brothers grovel before him. Such a person, I mean, how do we judge people? By their dreams. So this is the dream. He's certainly a person who has ambition. There's no question about that. But, and I say Dafka, such a person, has to also understand you can't have it all. Otherwise you'd be God, but you're not God. You're just a person, fallible human being. So that's another way to read the verse, which I like very much. That's the third thing he said. Um, maybe not even so much Tahar as more the text speaking to us. But in any event, it's not just that he said no. Fine. Now, let me get back to another point about this speech, which is critical speech. The, before we get to his reported speech, back in verse number seven, we have the word Vayimayin, he refused. And that's actually very important. So he said no, he refuses. He's not going to get involved with her. Vayimayin. Now, the word Vayimayin is an important word. And Rashi brought a medrash. Joseph refused, says Rashi. At that moment, he saw the image of his father, Jacob, before his eyes. That's what Rashi quotes. Famous Rashi, he saw his father, Jacob. Whatever he intended to do, not intended to do, the Midrashim are replete with stories that he really was interested in her, he really was going to accede to her request, but at the last minute, he sees his father's image. Now the question is, where is that coming from? Where is Vayimayin coming from? This little, this little drush, or the little drush. Yaakov also shot. said Vayimayin. Excuse me? Yaakov, by Yaakov, it also said Vayimayin. Yes, it does. I said very well, yes, exactly does. And that's what they're picking up over here. And it's not just the drush. The, the, the medrash connects the Vayimayin of the end of chapter 37 to the Vayimayin of the beginning of chapter 39. Remember, 38 is the story of Judah and Tamar. So it's a separate story. But if you think about the Joseph story, the word Vayimayin appeared not long ago, towards the very end of chapter 37. It's when Jacob hears or is told by his children that they found this bloody coat of Joseph. Joseph is missing and presumed dead, and they all arise to console him. All his sons and daughters arise to console him, says the Chumash. He doesn't accept the consolation. If he accepts the consolation, Joseph is dead. He accepts Nichum Avelim. No, no, I don't accept it because I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't accept the fact that he's dead. So I can't accept the consolation for his death because I think he might still be alive. I, have, I didn't find the body, found the coat. So that's the story of the father not giving up on his son. 
And now the Medrash connects that to the Devayamein over here, which says that Joseph hasn't forgotten his father. In other words, the point of the Medrash is that the, the, the response of Joseph to Mrs. Potiphar is a function of Joseph's upbringing, of Joseph's connection to the teachings of, of Jacob, teachings of Israel, and distinguishes him from, from, from Mitzrayim. Says the Medrash, bottom line here, from a moral standpoint, religious moral standpoint, Joseph has not assimilated. He's a guy who's going to assimilate like crazy. But in, from, from this step, from, on a certain ethical plane, no, he can't do it. And the Medrash says maybe still the teachings of, of his father, with whom he was very close, still stick with Joseph. That's Vayimayim. That's point number one. Now there's another question I wanted to raise over here. It's a question about the verses, but of course, it's a question about life, which is this. Joseph explains, and my, my question is, it might, might have been better for Joseph not to explain, to say, she's uh, shechvoi me, sorry, ma'am, uh, I'm not interested. Uh, thank you, it's a, take it as a compliment, I'm not interested, uh, whatever and move on without the explanations, which are very good explanations. He explains what it's all about, uh, breaking trust, about appreciation of what someone's done, etc. He's explaining it. But the fact of the matter is when you give an explanation, please just say no, you know, what about no, don't you understand, right? But when you start to explain things, then it can be heard a different way. And it's, it's possible that Mrs. Potiphar actually hears what Joseph says differently and then what Joseph actually is saying. Because what does he say? Listen, he says to her, your husband doesn't know what the heck goes on around here. He has no one, he'll never find out anything I do, he doesn't even check up on me. And she's saying, that's right, isn't, that's exactly what I'm saying. We'll never know the difference. He doesn't check up on you. And then um, he says, listen, he's given me everything. I'm the, most, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the most powerful person around here. And she's not, exactly, that's why I'm interested. In other words, he says so-called explanation, which we appreciate, but I'm not sure she's hearing it the same way. How, and he says, you know, I, no, he'll never know and I'm very important, but it would be wrong. So she's hearing that as a contradiction. You just told me the reason for yes, then you say, but it would be wrong which doesn't register altogether in her thinking. It would be wrong, that's irrelevant, you know? So the only way she understands Joseph is what she claims later. This guy's teasing me, this guy's taunting me, this guy's playing with me. But he didn't really say no. He says yes, and then he says he can. So that's, that's the way she, she, that's one way to understand what she's hearing. So he might have been better off without explanations. This is the, this is the halacha, whatever. Given I can't do it, I'm sorry very sorry. And then you can't be misunderstood. So that's a, a question in general in life often, we start to explain things. Okay, yes, I'll stop any comments or questions here. Yes, um, Laszlo, I see you. Laszlo, Laszlo, go ahead. You need to unmute yourself. Laszlo. Unmute, okay. Yes. Uh, he he might also have awakened her own self-consciousness by saying, we can't betray this man. She may have felt suddenly uh, 
that same feeling. Oh my God, I am betraying this man. Possible. He trusted me. It is certainly possible. Look, the Chumash, as many have noted, tends not to psychologize its characters. So it's very hard to know. The Chumash doesn't, unlike, say, some of the Greek stuff, it's, well, they, it's very psychological. That's not to say the Chumash never psychologizes, or the Bible never psychologizes. It's, sometimes it does. But for the most part, it tells us what people say and what people do. And most of the time, it doesn't tell us what people are, are thinking. There are exceptions to that rule. For example, in the book of Shmuel, King Saul, the, 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 the writer will often tell us what Saul is thinking. It almost never tells us, with one exception, what, 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 what David is thinking. So, uh, so in general, it doesn't say. So we, Abraham at the Akeda, what is he thinking? I mean, we try to glean it from the words, but the fact of the matter is that it's, uh, it's very hard to know what he has awoken in Mrs. Potiphar. But my point, I would say, I would have to lean towards the thought that not to give a generous reading to Mrs. Potiphar, just because, as I mentioned earlier, it's always about Mitzrayim, the Mitzri. And what we know of Mitzri in the Chumash is that seeing and taking, which is the primal sin of the Bible, seeing and taking, because it's good. When you see it, you take it. And I would add to this, and thank you for the comment, I would add that the idea of seeing and taking, okay, whether it's the forbidden fruit of the garden or whether it's the uh, daughters of the humans in chapter six, as, or as Abraham says, when they see you, they will take you. When people operate on the assumption that it, when they see something, they're gonna take it, the last thing in their world they're thinking of is a kind of history. When Joseph says, he's been so good to me in the past, I can see Mrs. Potiphar saying, Yes, he was good to you last week. He may be good to you uh, yesterday morning. Is he good to you right now? Seeing and taking means you operate on the moment, what you see now, without any moral calculus. The past doesn't exist. So the point is what Joseph is talking about is his whole history. Ever since I've come here, he's been this, he's done that. And Joseph contextualizes his behavior today in light of the way this person relates to me over time. But for the one who simply takes what one sees, there is no overtime. You, you live in the moment. And living in the moment means that you can disregard, you can forget, or not take into account, uh, you know, what has happened in the past. It's all about this moment. It's all about, is it good for me today? There's no idea of how karata told about the past, about relationships, because that's not the way you function. You, so I think that's also perhaps part of it as well. But in general, it's very hard to know often what people are thinking. Because the Chumash doesn't actually, typically, or the Bible in general, doesn't actually tell us. So I think that's uh, that's an important point. Okay. Uh, uh, Rabbi anybody, Silver. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Uh, Rabbi Silver. One um, one more question from Sarah Olshin. Um, she asks, "Do you think Joseph protests too much?" End quote. It's a lot of verbiage for a lesser yes or no question. That's a good question. I don't tend to. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think he's, I think, I think what he says is very powerful. I think that what he says is, um, is a very important teaching. Um, so I don't think it's like uh, Avimelech. When Avimelech says, God, what kind of God are you? He said, she said, there there's a 
there's an attempt to evade responsibility. I don't think he's trying to evade responsibility. He, he talks about himself. This is what he's done for me. He's saying, listen, I don't know about your relationship with your husband. It's your business. But as far as I'm concerned, this is how, this is how I see it in terms of my, my, my experience with him. He's trusted me and he's helped me. And therefore, I'm, I, can't, I can't do this. So and in general, I think, in general, I like to give people, uh, I like not to, in general in life, I think we, I like to give uh, people the general, I think the Talmud is this way. We are generous in our assessments. I don't like to, to ask the question, why is the person, what is their motivation? You know what I mean? I think that's a bad road to go down. I, I, I presume people for the most part, except if I really have evidence to the contrary, they're coming from a good place. They may say something that is completely counter to my thinking, but I think it's important to have this kind of, kind of generosity of spirit in, in assessing other people's arguments and, and focus on the argument, as opposed to if there's no good reason, sometimes there is reason to doubt people clearly, but without a strong reason to doubt, uh, you know, I don't think we should go that path. So no, I, I don't see Joseph here as protesting too much. It is true that the Medrash, many Midrashim, see Joseph as perhaps trying to talk himself out of it. And even the Vayimma'ain, which in the cantillation mark is a Shalshelet, uh, is this wavering. And according to one view, Joseph comes, came to the house to do his, to do his work. By, we'll get to that next that according to the one view, he came to the house to finally give in to her. She was nudging him constantly, as we'll see. And he decides, he does something, let's, let's go with, let's, let's find out, give in, what's the difference? We'll never find out anyway, you know? So there is that view within the Medrash that sees Joseph as torn in some, to some degree. It's possible. But again, as a general principle, personally, I like to, to presume that people are saying something from good motives and not question their motivation. Uh, so no, I, not necessarily. Um, it's my take on it in any event. Okay, now we have the next verse. This is actually a very interesting verse. So first of all, it says she spoke to Joseph every day, day after day. So in other words, she doesn't take his no as an absolute no. She thinks in some level she can, he can be convinced, which leads me to what I said back before, which is that she's not hearing what he says. It doesn't make sense to her. Yes, I am the greatest. Yes, I can do whatever I want. It'll never find out, which for her is sufficient reason. So therefore, she doesn't, she's not silent. But he refused to, to listen means to accept. He did, would not accept what she is saying. Then the Chumash says, it's very striking. Because she didn't say sleep next to me. She said sleep with me. But here the Chumash says he didn't listen to her to lie next to her to be with her. It's very interesting over here. And I'll come back to that in hopefully a little later today uh, about that. He didn't even want to get too close. He didn't want to put himself in a situation or perhaps of temptation or things can, you know, things can happen. So he didn't even want Ushkab Etzla, even next to Anira, he wouldn't do that either, fine. Now this verse, of course, verse number 10, is an interesting verse for a completely other reason, because this verse has been lifted out of the book of Breshi by a different book, 
and placed in a very strategic and important place in, in, in that book. Of course, the book I'm referring to, to many of you know this already, is of course, McGill and Esther. McGill and Esther, which largely plays off the story of Joseph. I forget how many references, and I once counted over 50 references to the Joseph narrative in McGill and Esther. But one of them is this, that in the, one of the critical stories in the Megillah is the chapter three when Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh appoints Haman to be in charge of, the, uh, of his house, right? So he's inside the gate of the king. And the king gives a command in the Megillah, chapter three, that everybody inside the, inside, inside the gate, in the, in, the, in the courtyard of the king, has to bow down to Haman. Mordechai refuses to bow down. The Megillah doesn't tell us why. He simply will not bow down to Haman. And then in the Megillah, in chapter 3, it says, They say to Mordechai, Why do you violate the king's command? That's the Megillah after chapter 3, the very beginning of chapter 3. And then it says, They would speak to him every day. Right? Let's find that verse. In the Megillah, it's chapter 3. Where are you in Megillah? Let's see. Uh, yeah, right here. Yeah. It's chapter 3, verse number... Chapter 3. Yeah, it's verse number 4. They said in verse chapter 3, verse 3, why do you violate the king's command? Next verse. Though they spoke to him every day, he refused, right? He refused to listen. They're saying, you're violating the king's order, right? King's command. They spoke to him every day. He refused to listen, right? Yom v'yom. So they, then they go to the they go to the they to go to Hubbard to see if Mordechai's word would stand. He had told them he's a Jew. Now, I don't want to get into this verse. I've spoken about it. It's in my book on the Megillah. I talk a lot about the verse. But what's striking is, you have exactly the same story. The difference being that in the case over here, Mordechai doesn't give a reason. He just refuses to do it. He's not going to bow down to Haman for whatever reason. You can't get into that. He's not going to bow down to Haman. He doesn't explain why. So, and they, so therefore, they persist. In the case of Joseph, he did explain why. She persists anyway. Um, so it's interesting. And my point about the parallel is that in each of these two cases, in the case of Mordechai in, that, in the court of the king, in the case of Joseph in Mrs. Potiphar's house, what we essentially have is a kind of test. Mordechai is a Jew. As a Jew, he's not gonna bow down. This is his red line. And one way to understand it is Haman is not just a wicked person. He's a, he's a Amalek, he's Agag. He's an Agagi, Agagite. You can bow down in the Bible all the time to people to kings, oh, constantly. Jacob bows down to Pharaoh. Jacob bows down to Joseph. That's not a problem. It's a sign of respect. But to bow down to Amalek, you can't do that. Because Amalek is, is the anti-God. Amalek is God's enemy. I can't respect God's enemy. God's sworn enemy. That's his red line. Yes, Mordechai wants to, Mordechai has the ambition of Joseph. Why is Mordechai in the gate of the king in the first place? When he first comes there, he's in Shushan, the city of Shushan. He's not in the gate of the king. He's only in the gate of the king after Esther becomes the queen. 
you get a sense this is a guy who's catapulting himself up and he comes from royalty, he comes from Saul, he comes from Kish. So yes, he's a, there are people like this. He's a political person, he wants power, he craves power and craving power is not always bad. You can do a lot of good, a lot of good, but it comes at a cost. And the cost over here is, if you're in the gate of the king, you have to bow down to Haman. If you're not in the gate, you don't have to bow down to Haman. If he stays in Shushan, he can do whatever he wants. Everybody in the gate's got to bow down to Haman. So that's his red line. His red line is, yes, I want power. Yes, I can do good. Yes, yes, yes. My red line is Amalek. I'm not bowing down to Amalek. And that's Joseph. If you go back to our story now and think about Joseph, that's just his red line. Yes, I'm moving up in the world. Yes, I'm in charge of this enormous estate. Yes, I have great power. Came as a nobody, less than nobody. Look what I am today. Fine. Now we have Mrs. Potiphar. And she's saying, listen, I can hear her saying, and the Chumash says it. You're in the land of Egypt now. You got back in the old country, you know? I know what you did in the old country with your quaint ways. We have a different way to work in this country. Not a big deal. I'm not going to know about it either. You know? You, you look good to me. You're beautiful. Beautiful human being. One of the beautiful people. And that's Joseph's red line. This I can't do. Wherever it takes me, this I cannot do. So the, it's two stories about the red lines. And the Megillah picks this up, of course. Megillah picks up all kinds of pieces from the Joseph story. This is one of the critical pieces. This is what gets Mordecai in trouble and gets the Jewish people in trouble, almost annihilated. And not because Mordecai did the wrong thing. He didn't do the wrong thing. He did the right thing. The issue in the book Megillah is, I don't want to get into this now, but the issue in the Megillah is not whether Mordecai does the right thing or the wrong thing. Not bowing down to a Moloch cannot be wrong. But the only question is, why are you there in the first place? If you don't put yourself in that, in that place, right? If you don't crave the power, your, your little cousin is the queen of Egypt and you control her. And suddenly she's the queen and you're in the gate of the king. But if you're not in the gate of the king, you never have to bow down in the first place and the Jews aren't uh, in danger. You have endangered the Jewish people, not by doing the wrong thing, because in that situation you did the right thing. But why are you there? And looking back at our story now with Joseph, not that Joseph chooses to be in the house of Potiphar. He does not choose it. The brothers have chosen it. Maybe God chose it. But de facto, that's where he is. De facto, he is in Israel. And you're suddenly faced with a whole bunch of choices that were you elsewhere, you wouldn't have to make those choices. But, but in point of fact, that's where you are. So there's, he's faced with a different range of questions, you know? And it's a real test for Joseph. It's a real challenge. And unless you're in that situation, it's hard to judge. I mean, the Chumash judges positively, but that's where Joseph finds himself. That's Joseph finds himself. It's interesting just to conclude the thought that Rashi, when, when, when the brothers come to their father Jacob at the end of chapter 37, and they bring the coat, and Jacob said, Oh, the coat of Joseph, coat of my son, Tonet Bini, my son, Tarof Taraf Yosef, Joseph has been torn to pieces. Tarof Taraf Yosef. And Rashi comments, Rashi brings the Medrash, Niba Vuoyada Masha Niba. He prophesied but didn't know what he was prophesying, right? And the Medrash says, I see that Joseph torn to pieces 
that he will, and Mrs. Potiphar is going to try to incite him. So what the, what Rashi is, what the Medrash means is not that Jacob knows anything about Joseph's whereabouts. Of course, Jacob does not know, obviously. But it's making a different point. Tarof, Taraf, Yosef, Joseph is torn to pieces. Where is Joseph? As Jacob is speaking, where is Joseph? Answer, he's at the butcher. Sarah Tabachim. A butcher, a butcher, a butcher carves up meat for the torn meat trefer. Tarof, Taraf, Yosef, right? Tarof, Taraf, Yosef. And the point is, Joseph has been torn up. That Joseph is going to spend the rest of his life in, 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 in the land of Egypt, far away from his father, far away from his traditions. And that's what the Medrash says, that what Jacob said is true, actually. He didn't realize it, but it's true, that Joseph is forever distanced from the family. Maybe not forever, maybe after his death he's reunited. But at the end of the day, he's in a situation where he faces all kinds of challenges that had he not been sent into exile, who knows what Joseph might have become, another Jacob. It wouldn't be four forefathers, three forefathers before. Who knows? He's most talented of all. But no, but Tarof, he finds it. And then you have to deal with your situation. If someone not in that situation can't make judgments because you're not in that situation. And that's the story of, of Mordechai. And Mordechai put himself in that situation. But he can do a lot of good. On the other hand, it comes at a cost. And we'll see that cost, well, Joseph will have the same cost. And Joseph's going to be part of Pharaoh's court. You have the same kind of situation. It, you can't say no to certain things. You can't say no to marrying the daughter of, of the priest of Egypt, whose name is Potiphar, Potifera. But we'll get to that story. This is what it's about. Anyway, okay. So now we have, get back to our to our, our story. I'll read a few more verses and I'll take comments or questions. Um, but So she keeps every day shepherding this guy every day because from her perspective, he didn't say no. I could do what I could do what I could do it. It would be wrong. She's not listening, not hearing that. And now we're told the following. One day, on this day, he comes to the house to do his work. And the house, for whatever reason, is empty. The Chumash doesn't say why it's empty. The Midrashim say maybe there's a holiday in Egypt, you know, where the Egyptians don't work. Maybe they have their religious holiday or whatever. And Joseph is a Jew, so... He's going to work on that day, you know, for whatever reason. Some Midrashim say he comes on a day when no one's home because he says, listen, she's nudging me every day. Let's get it over with, that kind of thing. We don't know. Well, let's presume that he just happens to be that way. There's no one around. But and she grabs onto his coat saying, sleep in me, sleep with me. So he left, he runs out, he leaves his coat in her hand and he runs out by Yonos, he flees by and he goes outside. I wanna say a few words about this puzzle and then I'll stop and take comments or questions. So the first thing I wanna note for us is that we have the word over here, two words that are critical in this whole episode. I'll take the second first, which is the less critical, and that's the word Azav. He abandoned his coat in her hand and he ran outside. And of course, we remember that earlier it said about Potiphar, Bayazov Kolashilo Biyad Yosef, that he, he, he forsook everything into Joseph's hand. 
he'd do nothing, he'd do nothing that what Joseph did except for the bread that he would eat. And over here, and that the abandoning into Joseph's hand means Joseph has full control of the entire Potiphar estate, the fields, the house, the, everything. And it's put into his hand. Hand means his control. And now in this moment, Joseph finds his coat, Azav Bigdo Biyada, in, in, in her hands. His fate is in her hands. The Beged, of course, the Beged is not Joseph, but it's about as close as you can get. The Beged represents Joseph. So she has Joseph, not the Joseph she wants in her hands, but Joseph's Beged, that which represents Joseph in her hands. Let me just say, by the way, as an aside, that the idea that the coat represents the you, that I want you, in this case, she only gets his coat, plays, this is chapter 39, and plays off, once again, another interesting playing off of the previous chapter of Judah and Tamar. When we studied that chapter, I made several references to connections between Judah and Tamar and the story that precedes and follows, but there are many more. And this is one of them. Because in the story of Judah and Tamar, Ta Judah's wife dies. Tamar, his daughter-in-law, has been waiting around for a long time to marry his youngest son, which will never happen. And she realizes that it's not going to happen because he's been playing her. So she dresses up as a prostitute, stands in the, in the crossroads, and he sees her. And he's, he's, his own wife has just died. He's off to the, to sh the sheep shearing, which is a festive time. And he sees this uh, woman and he wants to sleep with her. And he, and he said, he walks over to her, uh, right? Um, let's see what the language over there is. Um, says to her, let me come to you. That's in chapter 38. He didn't know it's his daughter anymore. And she says, what will you give me? What will you give me? He says, I'll send you a goat. And then she says, no, no, no. I'm not interested in your goals, in your promises. You forget that, not the promises. I'll tell you what I do want from you. She determines. No, no, forget the promise to send me later. Some guy I know has been promising me for years to send me something. Never happens, never will happen. No, I don't want the goat later. I want something now. Here's what I want to take for you now. Your staff, your seal, which means your coat. So she takes his coat in lieu of him. What she's really saying is, I, I want you. I don't want something else. I want someone to perform the leveret marriage, which is what's happening now, unbeknownst to you, because her face is covered. He has no idea, but she does. So the, the, the coat is representing the person that's in Judah Tamar's story in one way. And over here, it's the coat in lieu of himself that he leaves in her hands. So he's, she has him, but not him. And Rabbi Silber, yes. Also, um, it's the coat. There was the coat that got him into trouble in the first place with the brothers. You know the kin ah, and then here's another reference to coat. And then Shmuel and Shaul and the coat. Yes, the coat appears in many places. Leaving Shmuel and Shaul out of it, because the coat appears in the book of Shmuel in several places. But with Joseph, okay. Since you mentioned it, I'll make a little comment about that, about the coat. Once again, Judah and Tamar. The point that the difference between Joseph and Judah can be is reflected in the uh, in the cult. Of course, Judah gives Tamar his coat and his staff and his seal, but 
But the end of chapter 38, after his confession, she sends him the code and says, you know, the father is the, the one whose cult this is, is the father of, of these, of these uh, to be born children, you know what I mean? The fetuses or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm pregnant with, the, he's the father of, of, of the, I'm pregnant with his, with his children. And Judah says, she's right. And when he says she's right, he actually gets, he gets back his staff, his seal and his coat. Judah is somebody who through confession is able to, 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 to regain what has been lost. In the case of Joseph though, it's very striking, is more than two coats with Joseph. There's the coat that his father gave, gave him, the Katonet Pasim, which is, um, which is dipped in blood. And that's, Joseph never wears that again. Then you have the coat over here that he leaves in the hands of Mrs. Potiphar. And then you have later when Joseph leaves prison, he, 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 he dresses, right? By Chalev Simlot Tavi has his prison clothing. Then he switches the prison clothing to, to appear before Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh gives him a set of clothing. So you have somebody who constantly gets new clothing. That's Joseph. As opposed to somebody who is regaining, uh, who's able to, to, to somehow regain his past. And that's typical of Judah. Judah is the, Judah is the, is the, is the penitent who able to, to, through confession, to regain his past. He regains everything. And yes, confession is necessary to build the family. And Joseph is someone different. Wherever you put Joseph, he succeeds. But he, he moves to a new place all the time. He's never in the same place. He's moving in, in different stages. And no matter where you put him, it makes absolutely no difference. He's capable of, of recognizing the situation and succeeding in, in, the, in wherever you, you find Joseph. So that's a very striking contrast between Judah and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Joseph, which is reflected in the, in the, in the garments, uh, yes. That is very true. Okay, let me stop and take comments or questions. What I have kind of a watch. What what time is it now? Um, it is eleven oh eight, and I okay. just want to point out a comment in the chat from yes. Rebecca um, Rottenberg Nadler that Yehuda also does regain his family. Oh. Yes, you, Judah is the catalyst in this book. To yes, he redeems his own family <laughs> through his confession, and Judah will also be the one who will be the catalyst to build Jacob's family through his confession later on. And through his taking of responsibility, as we noted, Judah is the one who will be the catalyst and Judah will be the leader. At the end of the day, there are two leaders in, in Jacob's thinking of the, of the brothers of the nation, but the primary leader, the primary king comes from Judah and uh, not from Joseph. Joseph may be the most talented, but in terms of leadership, it's about taking responsibility. And that's what Judah, uh, reflects and for Joseph we'll see it's very unclear to what Joseph maybe at the end of his life he does but unclear to what extent Joseph actually takes responsibility maybe we'll see this next week or whenever we get there but um, yes that is very true about Judah and it's true about the confession which plays a central role uh, in, in this book from beginning to end the first story of the Chumash if Adam had said you're right God I did the wrong thing maybe we all be learning together in the Garden of Eden, who knows? But the fact of the matter is, that's not what he says. He says, it's your fault and her fault. She did it, and frankly, God, the woman that you put by my side, so you have to take some of the blame as well. And he doesn't take the blame himself. And God says to the woman, what did you do, the snake? There's always some truth in that, but, but the bottom line is the Chumash is very demanding when it comes to confession. So, right, so we don't have that. And Judah, 
who is able to confess, is able to unite and to put him, take responsibility, take me as a slave instead of Benjamin. He's the one who builds the family. He's the catalyst. And he's the one whom Jacob rewards with, uh, with kingship because everybody respects the one who takes personal responsibility. Okay, we have only a few minutes left here. Let me, let's continue a little bit more here. And uh, fine, so let's see, we're up to, um, fine. So now the, so now he, 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 let me make one more comment. Uh, about this. He ran outside. Two, two more comments about the verse. First of all, let me simply note that the little word yad, yud dalit, two-letter word, right? Hand. The word yad figures prominently in this chapter from beginning to end. Because the Chumash says earlier, Joseph comes down to Egypt. He's brought to Egypt in the very first verse. Miyada He's brought down to Egypt by the hand of the Ishmaelites. So Joseph was thrown into a pit, right? Remember the brothers said to, to each other, you, you, right? Al-Tishuchu Yad, we shouldn't kill him, says Judah, right? Yad al-Tishuchu Bo, Ruvain said. So they're about to kill him, and then Ruvain and Yehuda says later, listen, uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't harm him. Let's, 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 let's sell him instead. And Joseph finds himself in the hands, in the hands of the Ishmaelites, We'll bring him down to Egypt. And then in chapter 39, we have the emphasis on Joseph's rise, ascent to power. And we were told that the reason Joseph is so successful is Hashem Matsuriach Biyado. God enables him to be successful. God's hand is operative in, this, in the chapter in a very direct way. It's God who's guiding everything. And therefore, Potiphar responds. In verse number four, everything Potiphar had, he gave in Joseph's hand. So Joseph has control. And that's in verse number four. And then in verse number six, everything was abandoned into Joseph's hand. So you have the sense over here of the person who was first in the hands of the Ishmaelites. And then through God's inter intervention, God's intercession, God's hand, Everything suddenly is in Joseph's hands. But suddenly everything turns around. The very ascent to power. It's what that's a, that's what's that's what's great about the, I mean, what's great about the story. There are hundred things great about the story. But the, it's the very ascent to power which gets you in trouble because Mrs. Potiphar sees him as beautiful only after he has everything be adult. From her perspective, he's the, he's, he's the most powerful guy in the house because Potiphar has abandoned everything into Joseph's hand. And therefore Joseph's in a precarious situation. And at the end of the day, when she grabs onto his coat, and suddenly his coat is in her hands and his coat being representing him, suddenly this powerful person finds himself in the hands of Mrs. Potiphar. And what I wanted to comment about that, among other things, is this, that there's something else about Joseph, which is very interesting. Joseph said to Mrs. Potiphar, in explaining why he can't get involved, he makes the statement, there is none greater in the house than me. Now he's saying this to, I claim, to explain why he needs to be grateful. Look what your master has, look what my master has done for me. He's given me so much. There's no one greater than me. But on the other hand, 
you can read it as a statement saying the truth. Listen, I know I'm the most powerful person here. And what's interesting is in thinking about that expression, I'm, how powerful I am, it reminds me of what Joseph says to his brothers later in the story, when he says, I am Joseph. And don't feel bad because God, God sent me down here. I am Pharaoh's father figure. I'm a master to the entire house and the, and the ruler over the land of Egypt. That's what Joseph says to his brothers. That's chapter 44. In chapter 50, after Joseph buries his father, uh, he wants to bury his father. He, please, he wants to bury his father, so he goes to Pharaoh's servants. He says, please, please, please speak to Pharaoh for me, intercede for me. I want to bury my father and I want to return. And that's very striking, isn't it? This is the master, this is the counselor to Pharaoh, the master of his house. He has to beg the servants to intercede and promise to come back. And the point is when you read that, what you recognize is that the power Joseph thought he had was fully illusory. Yes, he had a lot of power. You know why? Because Pharaoh uses him he makes Pharaoh rich. So of course he has power. And the moment Pharaoh doesn't need Joseph, he has no power. He's just a slave, like well, even lower than the other slaves. He has to beg the others to intervene. And the same thing is true over here. And that's a problem, I think, as far as Joseph, which is, I think he really believes it. There's none greater than me. But we discover very quickly, that's not the case. You think you have so much power. You don't have that much power. You have power that's been granted you by Potiphar. And if the wife intervenes with Potiphar and she has access to Potiphar, of course, probably she's included in the bread that he eats. So we suddenly discover that Joseph, the most powerful one, will end up in jail. And he's lucky to end up in jail, I would add. We'll discuss that next week. Why jail and why not the guillotine? The chief butcher can't be squeamish about butchering another person. So there's a good reason that Joseph lives altogether. And that's a very important point for the story. But the point is, if he means it, he's wrong. Because he doesn't really get it. He doesn't understand his, his real role over here. His role is to make Potiphar rich. And as long as he does that, Potiphar is happy with him. Why even bother checking up? Look at my, just let me see the bank accounts at the end of the day. Totally fine. But the moment he crosses Potiphar, he'll discover exactly how powerful he is. So that's an important point. And the last point I want to make is about the word Yad, which runs through this entire chapter. I mentioned several times already. And I want to mention one more point about Yad, just to conclude a thought we've started with in the past, about the connection between the previous chapter and this chapter, Judah and Tamar. Because the end of chapter 38, the birth of the twins, Peretz and Zerach, and there too we have the word Yad. And it came to pass, the very end of chapter 38, um, when she was giving birth, Tamar was giving birth, so when she was about to give birth, one of them stuck out his hand, one of the twins. And the, and the midwife tore, put on his hand, she put a string around his hand, saying, a red string, a shani, this one came out first. However, then he brought his hand back, back in, and the other one jumped out first. What a breach you've made. And then afterwards, the last verse, then 
the one whose hand had been put out, who had the red string, came out, and she named him Zerah. And we commented on that, that there's a play in the Chumash on the word Shani, Shinun Yud, and the word Shani, Shinun Yud, second. That the point of the story is that the ambiguity about who was born first is disambiguated. That in fact, the one who has Shani, Shani, is in fact the second. That's a very, very important point. We discussed that. But my point is the very end of the previous chapter, the last three verses have the word Yad four times. And because the, their point is, it's exactly, we know from the hand exactly where they, how they, how they factor in. The one whose hand was put out has on his hand, at the end of the day, it says, he's not son number one, he's son number two. And my point is this theme of the hand then, the Chumash in a different way, expands the theme of the hand, and it makes the point, who's in control over here, right? We have that expression, biyado, I have the authority, the power to do something. And the question is, who actually has the power? Who has the control? And by the time you get halfway through the chapter, we understand it's not Joseph. He will have power if his power, if his, if his abilities work well for the people that actually have the real power. Then he has a lot of power. And the moment they don't, he has zero power. He ends up in jail. So we have another example of how the story of Judah and Tamar plays in in so many ways, plays into the larger story, and in particular, chapter 39, the expansion of chapter 38. Now, I'll stop at this point to take one or two questions, and then we will continue next week, uh, hopefully, with this finishing up this chapter and moving forward. The goal is by the end of the year, not just the semester, the year to complete Safer Brishi. That's the goal. Okay, are there any comments or questions? I'll take them. Yes, I just want to point out one from in the chat from Aviva Davidson that um, I'm pointing out, like, there's no one bigger than me, quote, is similar to Joseph's bragging about when telling his brothers about his dreams. And the tendency of his both times leads to his temporary downfall. Is there a parallel between Joseph's losing coats and receiving new coats to jo Jacob's process of transformation? Aviva, did I get that right? The, look, the, um, the, the idea of Joseph as one who has a um, certain conception of where he stands, okay? That's the central theme in the rest of this book. Joseph is, in fact, God's emissary. God is using Joseph to carry out God's plan. That Joseph is certainly understands. What Joseph may not yet understand is what exactly God's plan is. Because God's plan will not be just to feed his brethren temporarily in time of famine. But we'll deal with this later. My point is that the Chumash, what makes it interesting, I mean, it makes it great, is it's very complicated. People are complicated, and Joseph has all different pieces to him. It's never black and white. So yes, I do believe that there's a, a misunderstanding of one's own role. Look, the guy has been, we understand this, the guy comes down as a Hebrew slave, and now he's in charge of this massive operation. So we, we understand what he could think, he sees himself as unbelievably successful. Whether he sees God is involved or not, we don't know yet. We can't tell that so far. But we understand that one with success can certainly suggest to someone that they have these uh, abilities. And he sees from where he's come from and where he is. And he looks and says, wow, you know, it's like really amazing. But on the other hand, you have to understand how he got where he got. God is helping him. But it's Potiphar who sees it and understands how to use Joseph for Potiphar's benefit. And that I think Joseph does, perhaps doesn't fully get. Because his statement in Enugodol turns out to be uh, 
very natural, as we will see in, and we continue next week as well. Okay, I'm going to stop. Yes. Rabbi Silber, you said, I remember once uh, in terms of Yaakov and uh, Lavan, uh, you know, he thought he was in control. He could leave any time, but he also became a bit of a slave to that household and the possessions and stayed on longer. That is true. And Yaakov, I did say that. Yaakov sees a, one might say he sees a business opportunity and he stays out another six years and he almost never gets out. So that's a related but a different point, which is that sometimes success can be dangerous in the sense that it, you know, it sort of it, uh, tempts us to do things uh, that if we thought about it from a different perspective, we would not have done that. He did intend to leave. He wants to leave. Joseph's been born, he wants to leave, but he sees the potential to uh, make some great financial gains and he stays for that reason. And at the end of the day, it's, it's not simple. He almost doesn't make it out altogether. Uh, mm -hmm. That is very true. I'll stop at this point then. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to be uh, next uh, Sunday. We'll hopefully meet. I'm actually leaving to Israel today. Got to see what's going on for Drisha in Israel. And um, looking forward to learning with you again next week. Thank you. All very right. Much. Thank you, Rabbi Silber. And, and our next class coming up later today at 1 p.m. Eastern time is Midrash on the Parsha with uh, Dr. Samuel Evans. Um, if you would like to find to join, you can find out more at drisha.org slash classes. Thank you, everyone, and have a good day. Thank you.